following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, March 24th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. If you were at all, maybe if you remember it, maybe you don't remember it or, or didn't watch it, but if you were as all as frustrated as I was at the ending of the TV show Lost, and honestly, the majority of movies made in the last eight years that seem to have zero desire for resolution. Right? They'll go for two hours, and then the credits will roll, and nothing's resolved. I mean, nobody's lives are changed, nobody's lives are turned, no injustices are made right, no forgiveness is extended, it's just credits roll. If you're at all frustrated by the lack of resolution, that seems to be dominating at least this portion of our, of our lives in this world. It's, it's because you were made in the image and likeness of God, period. God is a God of resolution. And the fullness of his promises to us come to a great resolution that we will get to live in and enjoy and experience for all of eternity. And this morning, as we pick up in Esther chapter 8, we are beginning the downward slide of resolution in the story. You think about riding up a roller coaster up that steep hill that never seems to want to finally get up there and then down at the speed of light. That's the way the book of Esther is starting to work out. We're starting to get to a place of resolution. If you remember last week in chapter 7, some resolution began to be teased at, hinted at, as Haman, the architect of the evil edict to see God's people throughout the Persian Empire annihilated, finally got what in our hearts and minds we wanted him to get, right? His plan gets exposed. The king judges him for his treason, for his pride, really. Haman is hanging on the gallows that he built in his backyard for Mordecai. And the end of chapter 7, the writer of Esther says, the wrath of the king was abated. But it's important to remember as we jump into chapter 8 why Xerxes' anger was there in the first place. He wasn't angry because he realized that there was an edict in place where an entire people group in his empire was going to be killed, destroyed, and plundered. He hadn't even bothered to look into that when he said okay to whatever Haman wanted to do. That's not why Xerxes got mad. Xerxes got mad because his ego got dented. Xerxes got mad in chapter 7 because his pride was hurt. Haman's pride that drove him to want to see God's people destroyed. Haman's pride that led him to writing this edict that ended in him hanging on the gallows. Haman's pride ended there. Xerxes' pride at feeling like someone in his own party was orchestrating the death of his own queen behind his own back. Xerxes' pride led him to executing Haman for his behavior. Xerxes wasn't wrathful and angry because the Israelites were set to be destroyed. He was mad because his ego was hurt. And as the story came to a, a momentary pause there in chapter 7, we pick it up now in chapter 8. On that same day, same day that finds Haman hanging on his own gallows, King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. 
Now, it was a Persian law that the property of traitors, anyone who was judged and found guilty of treason, the property in the estate of traitors would be given to the crown. And the crown could do whatever they wanted with the person's property. So here in verse 1, King Xerxes takes the property of Haman, who had been killed as a traitor earlier in the day, and he gives it to Esther. Esther had been wronged by Haman, so he gives Haman's property to her. And that's the first of what we're going to see are nine, maybe ten, I can't tell, I may have miscounted, nine, maybe ten, because ten sounds better, real reversals in chapter eight. Real senses of resolution coming in the story. Nine, maybe ten reversals. And we're going to watch for them as we read the rest of the chapter together. So Haman's property is given to Esther and Mordecai. Now Mordecai comes before the king. For Esther had told what he was to her. So everybody's out now, right? They had spent their life hiding their true identity. And, and now it's come out. They're Israelites. And Mordecai comes before the king. In verse 2, the king takes off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. So now a second reversal is starting to happen. The authority that Haman had been given by the king back in chapters 3 and 4 that we thought was going to go to Mordecai for his loyalty, that authority, that ring is now given to Mordecai. What was Haman's is now his, the second reversal. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman, the writer says. So now Mordecai not only has Haman's position and authority, he has control of Haman's property. The third reversal. And in these first three verses, we see another true reversal taking place, even in relationship. The Esther-Mordecai relationship is reversed. As a child, Mordecai took his cousin Esther in when her parents had died. He was her caretaker. Now, Mordecai is on the receiving end of Esther's care and attention. She gives him Mordecai's estate the king had given her. And a fourth reversal of relationship now is taking place. This is a crazy 36 hours if you just slow down and think about it. This is the same day that Haman finds himself hanging on his own gallows. Haman is out there on a tree in his own backyard. Mordecai is taking his throne and managing his estate. Esther's still queen. Esther's safe. Mordecai now has the position and even the property we thought was going to be his for his loyalty to the king earlier. The king is still in his position, in power. He's not dead. No one assassinated him. Everything seems to be made right now. This is when the credits would normally roll. But you can't roll the credits yet. It's not all resolved yet. What about the edict? Esther's okay, Mordecai's okay, the king's okay, everybody's okay. What, but what about the edict? What about the, the law of judgment that God's people still stand under? Well, in verses 3 through 6 of, of chapter 8, Esther is going to return to this edict. Look at verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and she wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. So here's a fifth reversal, if you see it. Only hours ago, we're still within the same day and a half, only hours ago, Haman had fallen at Esther's feet out of concern for his own life. Now Esther is falling at Xerxes' feet, concerned about the life of her people. 
And as Esther is going to respond in dealing with this edict, she's not moving chess pieces around on a board anymore. She's not devising feasts and plans to get the right people in the right place, to get in the right situation, to get what she's going to get. She's now pleading with tears to the king. And the king held out his golden scepter to Esther. Esther rose and stood before the king. And we'll see in her response, her, her shrewdness still, though, hasn't left her. She said, if it pleased the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Even though her posture has changed now, Esther has not left her shrewdness at the door. Four deferential clauses, two of them personal, two of them general. Two requests that what she's going to ask seem favorable to him. Two clauses to see if she's still favorable to him. And she weaves them together so much so that his favor towards her in this act, in this request, is reflective of the favor that she has in his eyes. You still like me. If I still have favor, may this request have favor. She made no mention of the fact that he was okay with the edict in the first place. It was Haman's plan. That evil guy you just put up on the tree, this was his plan. And these are my people we're talking about. So if I have favor in your eyes, may this request find favor with you. And now you've got an expectation. All these reversals already in this chapter. Mordecai is where he should have been. Haman is where we hoped he would end up. Esther is still safe. The king is still safe. Everybody seems to be going okay. Now we're at the edict. What do you expect the king to say? This is how the story goes. Sure, you have found favor in my eyes still, Esther. Let me do the very thing that you request since I had already told you three times that the half my kingdom would be yours. So verse 7 says, The king Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman. They've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. I've done my part. What more do you want? Look, you're still queen. He's now in a position of authority. You've given him all the, the property. You're safe. He's safe. I'm safe. What else do you want from me? That's not the answer we expected in the story. That's not the way it was going, was it? Esther, don't you know, Persian law is irrevocable. I can't just take it out once I've, my authority has put it in place. But we'll give Xerxes a, a, a moment of, of credit here and, and a peak of humanity. He, he at least, it seems like, in this moment, realized that his initial answer was not satisfying to his wife. Wasn't satisfying to his queen. Husbands, you've been in that situation before. God gives you the grace in a moment to realize maybe what you just said isn't satisfying and you need to try again. So Xerxes says in verse eight, but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king 
and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Now, old habits die very hard. Remember, we got into this whole mess because Haman came to Xerxes with an edict, with a plan. Xerxes didn't bother to learn anything about it, ask any questions about it, go and discover anything about it. He just gave him his ring, gave him his authority, said, do whatever you want. But here he is again. Here's the ring. Here's the authority. Go do whatever you want. I can't undo what's been done. But I have no problem with you figuring out a way to write something else with irrevocable authority that might be helpful. So what he sets up, literally, is edict versus edict. May the best edict win. And Mordecai, in a sixth reversal in one chapter, now has the power of edict and the ring that Haman had back in chapter 3 when he wrote his edict. In verses 9 through 15, the edict is going to be written and delivered. And at some point this week, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and read these verses in chapter 8, and I want you to look at the chapter 3 when Haman came with his initial edict to Xerxes, and the writer gives us the language of his edict, and I want you to just count, to see, to lay over each other the similarity between the two, because it's very important in understanding what's happening. Verse 9 says, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, each province in its own script, each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and in their language. Verse 10, and he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring. So Mordecai dictates an edict to be written, sent out everywhere in the empire with the authority of the king and the ring. He sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, not just lost donkeys out in the field somewhere. These are real horses now. Saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. One day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now, Mordecai, with the king's permission, literally crafts a second edict to neutralize almost word for word the first edict that Haman had written. This is an edict of, of a statement of defense for God's people. It was an edict that would have the authority of King Xerxes giving all Israelites throughout the Persian Empire the right to defend themselves on this day against anyone who would want to attack them in obedience to the first edict that was given. Now, it's not permission to have free reign to go out and find anybody you want to kill and plunder. It was permission to defend their lives against those who attacked them. He wrote an edict to try to neutralize the first one. And verse 13 says, A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Now, the fullness of resolution with regards to this second edict and this edict versus edict moment is going to come next week. That's chapter nine. There's still resolution to come. 
But there's more here that I want us to see and consider this morning in chapter 8. Verse 15. It says, at this point, Mordecai, he went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Now, if you remember, go back and read this week in chapter 3, when the first edict came out, Mordecai was left outside of the gate of the palace in sackcloth and ashes in mourning. And now here in chapter 8, Mordecai is not outside the gate of the palace. He's coming from the presence of the king in royal robes and golden crowns, not sackcloth and mourning. It's the seventh reversal. Maybe the eighth if I miscounted. I don't know. Verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And then every province and then every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Eighth reversal. When the first edict came out, the writer was very clear that the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. God's people, the Israelites, throughout the Persian Empire were weeping and mourning and fasting. But now, now, there's light, gladness, joy, and honor. Those who were given permission by the first edict on a particular day in the months to come to kill, destroy, annihilate, and plunder God's people, some were declaring themselves part of God's people. There's debatable understanding as to what this fear means for these Gentiles who are identifying themselves as God's people. There's, there's disputable understanding of what that actually means, but whatever it means, it means that some people are at least now trying to be Israelites. When the hidden part of the whole story all along has been Israelites trying to be Persians. Another reversal is taking place. And it's at this point, at least in the story, that the book of Esther invites us to just slow down. When a writer repeats certain words, when a writer repeats certain phrases, when a writer uses a particular literary device over and over and over again. So in one chapter, when we have nine, if not maybe 10, significant pictures of reversal in a story, you're invited to just stop to consider the role that reversal plays in the resolution coming in the story. And you and I are invited at least here together now to stop and at least take some time to consider the impact of the greatest providential reversal that has ever occurred in the history of man and even in our own life, the reversal of the gospel itself. This reversal is no more succinctly articulated than it is by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21. And Paul said, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is no greater providential reversal in the history of mankind than the only truly righteous one being made to be unrighteous, so that the truly unrighteous might be made to become righteous. And if you've got your Bibles, I want you to flip over to the New Testament to Ephesians chapter 2. We're not going to leave Esther for good, I promise. But I want you to flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. Because this greatest of reversals, that all these reversals in Esther can only begin to point to, or only shadows of, this greatest of providential reversals that has impacted our life and the life of everyone who has ever been born on the face of this earth is no better laid before us than it is by Paul in Ephesians 2. 
Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. As John Piper has so famously said, you were not in the doghouse with God. You were in the morgue. Paul says that we are all born sinners by nature. Sons of disobedience. That sinful disobedience and rebellion is in our DNA. And in our sin, we deserve God's judgment. God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's justice, God's character itself demands justice, judgment for such sin and rebellion. And apart from the grace of God, sin leaves us dead, dead to God's glory, dead to our dependence on him, dead to his power towards us through his spirit. In fact, listen to this. Paul helps the church in Corinth try to understand this as well in 1 Corinthians 2. When he says the natural man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, their foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually assessed. This spiritual death that we find ourselves in because of our sin leaves us unable to interpret the gifts of God, understand the gifts of God, the greatest of which is the gospel. It's foolishness to us, it's folly to us. He tells the church in Rome in Romans 8, the mind of the flesh is death. And the mind of the spirit is life and peace. But because the mind of the flesh is at enmity against God, it's at war against God, it's at a fight with God, it does not submit to God's law, for it cannot. Hearts dead in sin cannot submit to God's law. And those who are in the flesh cannot, Paul says, please God. This is the condition of every man, woman, and child born on the face of this earth apart from the grace of God. Dead in sin. Sons, daughters, children of disobedience. Children of wrath. But God. Arguably the two greatest words for a sinner to ever hear. But God, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead, not in the doghouse, dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. There is no greater reversal in the history of mankind than this. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. John Bloom said it this way. Maybe it will be more helpful. Once we were dead to any real love for God at all. Buried under the compounding and disorienting blindness of our own sin. But God. Once we were deceived by our own lust for glory and self-determination, 
Once we were unknowingly led by the Pied Piper called the Prince of the Power of the Air. But God. Once we lived enslaved to the passions of our flesh, being driven and tossed between the impulsive waves of our flesh and our mind. But God. Once we were God's enemies, hating him, children of his wrath. But God. God made his own son to be sin. On the cross, God laid the sins of man on his son. Our God ignoring God, hating God, rivaling sin. He that knew no sin was made sin so that you and I, those of us who from birth have been rebels, Sin in our DNA, autonomy coursing through our veins so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Friends, this is the greatest reversal in all of history. The only truly righteous for the unrighteous. Paul reminds us over and over and over again that dead children of wrath do not become living children of God but for God. It's by grace, Paul said, that you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast. Friends, do you realize the best that Xerxes could do for Esther and Mordecai and all of the Israelites in the empire was say, go figure out a way out of this. Esther, Mordecai, the rest of the Israelites in the Persian Empire still lived under the verdict of death, under the judgment of the edict. And all the most powerful person in the entire known world at that time could do was say, you need to go figure out your own way out of this. I can't help you. I need you to understand that every single philosophy, every single religion apart from Christianity can say nothing different than what Xerxes told Esther and Mordecai. The best that you can do is figure out your way out of this. The best that you can do is keep all these laws as well as you can. The best that you can do is pray to these 31,000 gods the best that you can. The best that you can do is understand all of this and be the best person that you can. The best that you can do to get out of what your heart knows is there and is coming the best that you can do is figure out your own way out of it. Friends, we have such a different king. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We were dead, but God made us alive. We were enslaved to sin, but God has set us free and raised us up to sit with him. We were children of his wrath, but God has forgiven us in Jesus and will for all of eternity pour out the immeasurable riches of his kindness to us in Christ. We were unrighteous, but in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the greatest reversal you could ever imagine. 
For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On that cross, the only truly righteous one wore upon his body the clothes of our sin, of our rebellion, of our treason, of our pride, of our envy, of our bitterness, of our lust, of our autonomy. He took the clothes of our sin upon his body so that by the grace of God the Father through faith in Jesus the Son, we might get his royal robes of righteousness. The best that Xerxes could give Mordecai, royal robes of purple and white and a golden crown. We get the robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, that we might enter the presence of God the Father. We might enter his presence in the fullness of joy without fear for all of eternity. The best that the king could do for Mordecai to make up for what had happened was to give him the temporal possessions and estate of Haman. Friends, in Jesus, we get the immeasurable riches of God's kindness towards us for all of eternity. Sons and daughters of disobedience being taken in and adopted as children of God the Father. Condemned sinners, justified and forgiven. Those with sinful DNA, rebellion coursing through their veins, still laboring under the temptation of a broken world. The very power of God's spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, alive and at work in our hearts, continuing to conform us into the image and likeness of Christ and yet one day to come when God has promised that we are going to see him and we see him we're going to be made like him and in that day all that he has begun by his grace through his spirit is going to come to the fullness of fruition and even sin itself will no longer be present the immeasurable riches of God's kindness towards us in his son for all of eternity and here's the thing I don't want you to miss it this greatest of all reversals that we could ever imagine. It's not all about us. God has providentially orchestrated such a great reversal so that he would be on display as just. His righteousness, his holiness, his justice would be seen on full display on the cross God was not overlooking sin. God was not sweeping it under the rug. The edict stands. The wages for sin is death. And the justice and the righteousness and the holiness of, of God was upheld on the cross as he poured out his wrath that we deserved on his son. Paul said the glory and the innermost hidden part of the gospel is that God demonstrated himself as just and the justifier of those who were unrighteous. Friends, it's the glory of God and the reputation of God and the honor of God that was ultimately at stake in the gospel. If he isn't righteous and just and holy, we should not give him two moments of our consideration. If he's not willing or able to uphold his own character, if he acts against his own person, we shouldn't give him two moments of consideration. But the glory of this greatest of providential reversals is that God upholds his justice while at the same time being the king that justifies the unrighteous. Friends, the great reversal of the gospel exalts the glory of God and it lifts the deepest burdens we face. 
And as we see in Esther chapter 8, I promise we're not, going, we're not turning away. We see in Esther chapter 8, there are tremendous implications of this reversal for our lives now. In particular, this greatest of reversal is the thing that sparks the deepest joys we could ever have. As Esther chapter 8 invites us to consider if there is such great joy in Susa at this edict, should you and I on this side of the cross not at least match the joy of God's people then? If at the promise of an edict being delivered that a day is going to come when we might be able to defend ourselves against an enemy, when we might be able to live past that day causes such great joy in the hearts and lives of God's people then, should we not at least match that kind of joy? As we understand the greatest of reversals that have been brought to our lives by the grace of God? One children's book that I was reading recently said if the gospel were an ice cream, its flavor would be joy. I mean, it's the very thing the angels declared when they told the shepherds in the field, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. The gospel has been and will always be a great joy. But Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great British preacher, has reminded the church that the world we live in is not going to pay much attention to all the organized efforts of the church. That's a whole other sermon. You can catch that? Don't argue with him. Don't say, no, you're wrong. Listen, the world is not going to pay much attention to the greatest of organized efforts the church can ever put forward. Lloyd-Jones says, instead, the one thing the world should pay attention to and will pay attention to is a body of people filled with the spirit of rejoicing. When the Holy Spirit is operating, this is the inevitable result, a joy which is unspeakable. Not a Pollyanna-like joy that tries to deny sorrow and pain, but a deep and abiding joy born of a confidence in a God that is unshakable, that's uncompromising, a heart that is anchored and held down and encased by the steadfast love of God that lets the tears flow, but isn't shaken the very thing the psalmist was describing in Psalm 32 verses 10 and 11 when he said many are the sorrows of the wicked but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord so be glad in the Lord and rejoice O righteous one shout for joy all you upright in heart Friends, on this side of the cross, we have every reason to be glad and to be able to rejoice because we know, not just in our minds, but we know and have tasted the steadfast love of God in Jesus. We know forgiveness. We know the greatest of all reversals, the dead given life, the slave set free, the condemned forgiven. Friends, we on this side of the cross get to live in constant awareness of this great reversal. And the more we see it and the more we enjoy it, the more we can't help but shout for joy. Friends, those who are surrounded by the steadfast love of the Lord, those who are continually seeing and enjoying the steadfast love of God, at least one thing that means is that there is for us real and abiding and unshakable joy in repentance. 
Repentance is the outworking of joy in the gospel. As God enables us by his spirit to see his glory in the face of his son for the first time or the second time or the third time or the fourth time, every single day for the rest of our life, as God allows us to see his glory in the face of his son, we come to more deeply enjoy it and appreciate it and that joy has legs. And one way it runs, one way it moves, one way that joy expresses itself is in repentance, is in seeing and enjoying who God is for us in his son, this greatest of reversal, and recognizing our God-belittling sin in our heart, our desire for autonomy, our bitterness that won't extend the same kind of forgiveness that has been extended to us. We see it, and we're able to turn from it, confess it, own it, turn from it, And in faith, believe again upon the promise of God to us in his son. That is joy being expressed. There is rejoicing in repentance. Friends, God invites us, this king invites us to come to him to be set free. For some to be made alive, to be forgiven. For to ask him, ask him to help you not to hesitate to run to him with your sin. Ask him to help you to confess your sin before him out of joy, without excuse, that you might live in the joy of his kindness and grace. The reformers were right when they said that all of life is repentance. It's all of life is joy. All of life is an increasing joy in the gospel. In one way, that joy is expressed, which is what rejoicing is. To rejoice is to express joy. One way the joy of the gospel is expressed in our lives is through repentance. Seeing Jesus leads us to enjoying Jesus and his grace, and that joy is expressed through repentance and faith. But here's the other thing we learn with Esther chapter 8 in relation to this joy. I mean, should we not, on one hand, yes, at least match the joy present in the hearts of God's people then on this side of the cross, but The other thing Esther 8 continues to call us to consider is the fact that God has never intended for this joy to terminate on ourselves. As one writer said, God never intended for the joy of the gospel to be a cul-de-sac in our hearts, to puddle up and pool up in ourselves. Esther 8 verse 6, Esther says, how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Friends, this is the question that our delight in God's grace has to lead us to. It's the very thing Paul wrestled with on his side of seeing the glory of God in Jesus and his heart being made alive by the Spirit of God. The very thing that constantly tormented his heart as he would pray and agonize with the Lord. I wish that I myself were cut off and accursed from Christ for the sake of my brothers. My kinsmen, according to the flesh, Paul said. I mean, having tasted and been saved by so great a grace, how how could Esther, how could Paul, how could we not want others to see and enjoy the same grace? Friends, Esther couldn't, couldn't live safely in the palace, clothed in all the riches, living with all the property, enjoying all the security in light of the death that awaited her people. See, the reality of it is, when when Esther made this petition to Xerxes and he gave that answer that was just so deflating to us when we were reading it, 
I mean, Xerxes rightly assumed that Esther was just like him. And that what mattered most was her own personal self-interest. She was safe. She was his queen. She still had her position. She still had her authority. Now she had the estate of Haman and Mordecai safe. He's got the authority. He's got the position. He's in the palace. What more do you want? You're okay. I mean, all her life so far in this story, she's done nothing but work the system for her advantage. How would he not assume that she would want anything more than what he's already given her? But Xerxes had missed the, the but God of Esther's life that had happened. He had missed the change that God was working out in her heart. Temporal safety and security for herself was nothing to her if it came without the same salvation and security for her people. Friends, you and I, we, we aren't meant to simply gather here together and enjoy the grace of God, feeling good about ourselves and going out and letting that joy puddle up in our hearts. You and I know, as the writer of Hebrews said, that it's appointed to man to die once and after that judgment. And we know and have tasted the joy of God's grace to us through faith in Jesus. And the only way through that judgment is by faith in Jesus how are we to walk out of here knowing that those around us in our lives remain as we were, dead in sin, children of wrath, slaves of sin and sons of disobedience? Friends, if God is indeed the one who brings new life to dead hearts, if God is indeed the one who sets captive hearts free, if God is the one who takes children of his wrath and makes them sons and daughters of his own, where is our pleading before our king who holds all things in his hands? Friends, this too is joy being expressed. The more we see and enjoy the grace of God to us in Jesus, the more the joy of the gospel wells up in our hearts. Rejoicing looks like pleading to God for the hearts and the lives of those around us that they might taste and know the same joy. That's another way gospel joy is expressed. Rejoicing isn't just the way we sing. It isn't just the way we shout. Rejoicing is the joy of the gospel in our hearts being expressed. One way it's expressed is through repentance. As we realize the grace of God to us. We realize the work still being done in our hearts, the sin that still remains, the temptation we still give into as we see and enjoy the kindness of God towards us. It leads us in joy to confess that and turn from it. As we see and enjoy the grace of God to us continually more and more, we see it and we enjoy it. That joy is expressed in a consistent, dependent, pleading to our King for the lives and the hearts of those around us. Friends, Esther chapter eight, it, it's a great moment in the kindness of God and the way he has inspired the writing of this book for us to stop and say, am I still amazed by the gospel? Am I still amazed by the kindness of God to me in Jesus? Or has the monotony of everyday life dulled my joy? Has the, 
has the fire of that joy that maybe you once felt. Have the flames of that joy and the grace of God towards you as you felt it in your heart. Have they begun to dwindle? Friends, this king of so great a reversal, this king who for our sake made his son to be sin so that in him we might by God's grace become the righteousness of God. This same king that our joy takes legs and runs to and pleas and cries for the hearts of those around us, this same king is the restorer of our joy. Maybe this morning the plea and the cry of your heart to him in just a moment is restore to me the joy of my salvation. That's what David came to realize. Restore to me the joy of being surrounded by your steadfast love. Restore to me the joy of being anchored in your steadfast love. Restore to me the joy of being encased in your steadfast love forever. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Friends, he is the one who restores, gives life and restores joy. And he's so good to us to give us so many reminders of his kindness and grace. He gives us his word constantly pointing our hearts back to him and his son. He gives us each other, the church, that we might encourage each other as long as it's called today that our hearts not grow cold and hard in sin, but we remind each other of who Jesus is, helping each other to see him and enjoy him. But he gives us moments like we're about to have together when we we gather, when we're reminded very tangibly of his kindness to us in his son. In just a moment, we're going to give you a couple of minutes to to pray and to reflect on God's word, a chance for you to cry out in repentance to God, a chance for you to cry out that God restore to you the joy of your salvation. And then for those who have tasted of God's goodness through faith in Jesus, you're going to be invited to come forward. We're going to remember Jesus' death in our place for our sins. We'll take a piece of bread, remembering his body broken in our place, dip it in a cup remembering his blood spilled for the forgiveness of our sins, for our adoption, for our justification, for our change, our sanctification into his image and likeness, and for the glory that is to come, our confidence in the promises of God. We're going to proclaim that as we receive communion together. And I, and I encourage you, as you pray, ask God in this moment to restore to you the depths of such great joy. And as you receive communion together this morning, let that proclamation, your your body proclaiming that confidence by God's grace and the work of his spirit, may he allow even that moment to be a moment where he stokes the embers of joy in him. So I'm going to pray. Then we're going to give you a couple of minutes to reflect and pray, and then we'll respond as we come forward. Father, we thank you this morning that you have saved us for so great a joy. Uh, Lord, that you haven't left us to figure out our own way out of our dilemma. You haven't left us to figure out the best way to to neutralize what our sin deserves. But Lord, you have come in your son and done for us what we could never do for ourselves. The greatest of reversals. The only righteous one being made unrighteous so that by your kindness through faith in him, we might wear his righteous robes in your presence. Know the forgiveness of our sins. Know the steadfast love of our Heavenly Father. We ask this morning that you, by your Spirit, would do what only you can do, and you would bring each heart here to a delight in that. We ask that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.